Good morning, everyone. What a privilege it is to be here with you guys at Henson Baptist Church here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, it's great to be with you. I have, uh, like Michael said, been, been friends with this brother for a good 14 or 15 years, and I'm not even sure, uh, and uh, have, have enjoyed those years being his friend, and I'm just thrilled to be able to be here with you guys uh, and preach the Word of God to you. I've never actually been to Portland before. I've, of course, heard about the city all my life. It's one of those that I, I think just because of its sheer radiance of coolness gets heard about all over the country. I'm serious. And, and you guys live up to it too. Um, Sebastian and I were on the same flight driving in here. And as we were uh, trying to figure out, you know, when we had to head home and everything, I'm, I'm flying out tomorrow morning. He's got to fly out this afternoon. Uh, we found ourselves sort of counting the amount of time that we had in Portland, Oregon, not by days or hours, but by meals that we were going to have. And we've done pretty well. I think, I think we figured out that between ice cream joints and coffee joints and the restaurants themselves, we're averaging about two and a half Portland joints per meal around here. So I think we're doing okay. It's a short amount of time, but we're managing to get in a lot of Portland, I think. Um, my, my son, like Michael said, is 11 years old. His name is Justin. And the J's, by the way, are not deliberate. I, I'm not sure exactly why that happened, but it, it, just, it just did, so... Who knows, if we have another child, his, neck, his name might be Bill or something. But Anyway, my son was, uh, was texting me this morning, and he was trying to convince me, as 11-year-olds do to their dads, that he's just so much cooler than me. This is a constant thing between us. Who is, who is cooler? Of course I am, but he, he does. And I, I told him at one point this morning, I said, look, brochacho, that's kind of my, my little nickname for him. I said, look, brochacho, you're not as cool as me. I know all of your tricks, and I invented half of them. So he wrote back to me and he said something like, yeah, you may be cool, but he said, I'm in Louisville, which is the home of the national basketball champs and also a whole bunch of really cool hipsters. And I said, oh, I said, oh, Justin, I said, I am currently in Portland, Oregon. And I said, the the Louisville hipsters, I, I said, Portland hipsters are the kinds of hipsters that Louisville hipsters want to be when they grow up. (laughs) And he said, yeah, well, I'm going to eat lunch. I said, you won't eat a lunch like I'm going to eat. (laughs) Anyway, it's good to be here with you all today here here in Portland. And I'm, I'm most thrilled of all to be able to open up God's word with you this morning. Let me invite you to take a Bible and turn over to the book of Ezekiel. I've got a question for you. If you look at the circumstances of your life right now, the things that are going on in your life, how easy is it for you to see the hand of God in those circumstances? I don't think it's an entirely easy question because I think depending on what the circumstances of our lives are, it can be harder or easier for us to see God's hand in the midst of it. In fact, to see whether God is in fact reigning over the circumstances of our lives. Now, I look back on certain things that are going on in my life, and, and I can see very clearly God's hand in it. It's very, it's very readily apparent to me that this event and this circumstance sort of worked together to bring about this outcome, and it was a good outcome, and my heart has no difficulty seeing God's hand in that and seeing God's crown and God's reign over it. And there are even certain hard circumstances in my life that usually I I can look at them sort of when the hard circumstance is over and I can still see very apparently God's reign and God's hand in that. Usually it's when the circumstances are over though, not in the midst of them. 
The really hard times, though, it seems to me in my experience as a Christian, to see God's hand and to be conscious and aware of God's reign over the circumstances of my life are when I am in the midst of a really difficult problem. When things aren't going the way that I want them to go, when when things are hard, when there are problems that I don't exactly see the solution to, I may have a head knowledge that that God, as he says in Romans 8, is working all things together for the good of those who love him. But, But it's very hard for me in the midst of it to feel that. It's hard for me to trace his hand, as Spurgeon once said. It's hard for me even to trust his heart sometimes in those circumstances. It's very hard for me to see God's reign when things right now are going badly and I can't see his purposes. I want to talk with you this morning about some of those questions. I want to do it from the book of Ezekiel. If you've uh, picked up one of these Bibles that are in front of you in the Purex, you can, you can find Bibles that look like this, uh, blue hard cover. And if you'll turn over to page 1285, you'll find uh, the beginning of the book of Ezekiel. We're going to be looking this morning at just the first three chapters of the book of Ezekiel. It's, a, it's an extraordinarily fun book to go through uh, in its entirety because it's so weird. Well, we're obviously not going to have time to do that this morning. But I do want to take you to the first three chapters of the book uh, and teach you, I hope, what God was trying to tell his people through this vision that the prophet Ezekiel had uh, on the banks of this river in Babylon. If you're looking through the book of Ezekiel or if, you're, if you've ever read through it or thought through it, it doesn't take long to realize that this is a book that is absolutely chock full of strange things. Just absolutely downright weird stuff is happening in the book of Ezekiel, page after page after page. So some of the most perplexing images in the entire Bible are contained here. Some of the most beloved and well-known passages in the entire Bible are contained here in the book of Ezekiel. There are parts of it that are just disturbing in the extreme, and then there are other parts of it that are just scandalously offensive when you get over into some of the chapters in the late 20s. It's a book that, as you read through it, really has a kind of dual message as you make your way through it. In the first half, the message of the book is nothing but crushing judgment against God's people, Israel. It's just one oracle, one prophecy after another. You are going to be destroyed, and there's pretty much nothing that's going to bring that to an end. In fact, there's one prophecy where Ezekiel even uses a kind of metal grate between himself and the people to show that even if the people are to pray, God's not going to hear their prayers. The destruction and the judgment are coming. That's what happens in the first half of the book. In the second half, though, the whole thing turns almost on a dime from despair and judgment to really one of the brightest visions of hope in the entire Bible. I think the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, comes to us a lot of times in the abstract, as if it's just a bunch of sayings, uh, you know, sayings of Confucius or something, and we can kind of dip into it as as a grab bag and pick out this one little sentence and, oh, look, that one really means something to me, but everything around it really doesn't. I think we approach the Bible a lot of times as a sort of, I don't know, judgment spaghetti with a messianic meatball thrown in here and there, and it's just kind of a mess. But when you really begin to study the prophets and see what they're doing, you find out that No, this thing is not really so much like a bowl of spaghetti with a a really favorite verse thrown in here or there. It's more like a sword. I mean, these things have a structure. They have a weight. They have a balance. They have a point. They have a cutting edge. They're doing something. And the book of Ezekiel is really not that different from any other in that way. I think a lot of times, too, we can approach the Bible, especially the Old Testament, as if it's sort of Uh, disconnected from any kind of real history or any real narrative. And yet every single one of these books 
Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all of them come in a particular history. It's the history of a nation called Israel. So let me start before we even dive into Ezekiel 1 to 3 and give you a little bit of the historical narrative of what's going on when Ezekiel wrote this book, because it it actually becomes enormously important for understanding the power of the message that Ezekiel's giving to the nation of Israel. Sometime around 600 BC, that's 600 years before Jesus, so we're talking, what, 2,600 years uh, into the past, there was a tiny little nation called Israel in the ancient Near East that was conquered by a massive power of the time, the Babylonian Empire, who was being ruled by an extremely powerful king named Nebuchadnezzar II. Now, Ezekiel was one of a fairly small group of Israelites to be carried away into exile in Babylon. So the armies of Babylon swept into Israel, they swept into Jerusalem, and they put a number of the residents of Israel and Jerusalem in chains and took them back to the city of Babylon as exiles and essentially as slaves. Now, not everybody in the nation of Israel or even in the city of Jerusalem was taken in that first invasion of Babylon in about 600 BC. Not everybody was taken. The only people that were taken really were the king and his very close advisors and then a fairly large-ish number of really influential people. Some of them were politicians. Some of them were courtiers in the king's court. Some of them were uh, families of the priests. Anybody who sort of made up the cultural, political, even religious leadership of the nation were carried away in chains back to Babylon. And as one of the as a young man about to enter the priesthood, part of a fairly important religiously, uh, religious leadership family in the nation, Ezekiel himself was taken in that first exile. He was about 25 years old at the time. Now, the passage that we're going to look at today, chapters 1 to 3, tells the story at the very beginning of the book about how God called this guy, Ezekiel, while he's in exile in Babylon, to be a prophet among all of these exiles in that city. The rest of the book, after chapters 1 to 3, just recounts the prophetic messages that God gave to Ezekiel. The whole book, I think it'll be important for you to just just give you a a look at how the whole book structures itself. It really organizes itself neatly around one massive event that took place in one particular year. And that was the final decisive conquest of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar about eight years after Ezekiel got uh, got to Babylon. So you see what's happening One invasion comes. It's sort of a a halfway destruction of Jerusalem. They take some of the people back to Babylon. Ezekiel is among them. Ezekiel begins to prophesy. And then the whole book of Ezekiel, all of his prophecies, sort of come to a, a balancing point. They come to a fulcrum on this second massive invasion by Nebuchadnezzar into Israel in which the whole city was destroyed. In fact, the whole book unfolds in really a beautiful and tragic and I think kind of cinematic way around that second invasion of Jerusalem. So let me show you why that is and how that is. For the, for the first 24 chapters of the book of Ezekiel, you might just f- kind of flip through. Just, just look through it. You don't actually have to read anything. Just look at the numbers. Feel the weight of it. First 24 chapters of the book of Ezekiel are all judgment. Ezekiel is warning the Israelites that the first invasion was not it. It's not over. Jerusalem's humiliation isn't over. The city is going to fall. It's not just going to be invaded a little bit. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back and absolutely destroy it. Well, at the beginning of chapter 24, that happens. So look at chapter 24, verse 1. This is when it happens. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day, the word of the Lord came to me, says Ezekiel. 
Son of man, record this date, this very date, because the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. So Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem and lays siege to it. Now, now here's the thing about chapter 24, verse 1. There was no CNN in the ancient world. There's no Fox News. There's no New York Times. There's no Oregonian. Nothing like that. The only way that Ezekiel could get this news about the city of Jerusalem being laid siege to was if God told him that it was happening. And that's exactly what happens. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day, the word of the Lord came to me. Nobody else knew about it, only Ezekiel. Now, in chapter 33, in chapter 33, something happens. It's very important. What happens? Well, the journey from Jerusalem to Babylon was about 600 miles, which meant that if you left Jerusalem on the day of the siege, it would take you something like a year to a year and a half, something like that, given the dangers, six months to a year, something like that, to make your way from Jerusalem all the way down to Babylon. And so what happens, apparently, is that when Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to the city of Jerusalem, there's one fellow who gets away. He's a fugitive from the, from the invasion. And he begins to make his way from Jerusalem all the way around, up to the north and then down again to the south, to Babylon. And he brings word, finally, six months to 18 months later, something like that, that the city of Jerusalem has fallen. That moment comes in Ezekiel chapter 33. So if you look at, look at chapter 33 and look in the very middle of it there at verse 21. In the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th, Ezekiel's all about the days. He's all about dates. In the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month, on the 5th day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. Now that's the moment that all the exiles in Babylon get the news. Ezekiel got it 6 to 18 months earlier when the word of the Lord came to him and told him the city's under siege. Takes this guy 6 to 18 months to make it to Babylon. He comes in and says, the city has fallen. And at that moment in the book of Ezekiel, Everything changes. It's almost like, I mean, there's like half a chapter where the judgment prophecies keep coming. And then it comes to a screeching stop. And at the beginning of chapter 34, it all turns to a message of hope and joy and, and, and revitalization for the nation of Israel. It's almost as if God changes the message and, and says, look, the judgment is over. And now I'm going to save my people. And it all happens when the message comes from this fugitive that everything is done. So that's the second turning point. Well, what happens in between this, like, uh, this, this moment when the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel and then the fugitive arrives? You've got sort of nine chapters in the middle, 24 to the middle of 33. And, and what's going on there? Well, what's happening is that it, this is what I talk about when I, when I say it's cinematic. You've got this picture of this fugitive leaving Jerusalem in chapter 24, right? And he's making his way through various nations of the world who have been enemies of the people of Israel over to Babylon, where he's going to give the news and the message is going to change. And what happens in those nine chapters while he's traveling through all those nations is that the camera, so to speak, in the book of Ezekiel pans out. And you see this guy moving through. And then you have this just wonderful, to the nation of Israel, this wonderful series of prophecies against the enemies of Israel as the fugitive makes his way through them. The camera's sort of following him through 24 to 33 until he reaches Babylon, the exile's there and says the city has fallen and God's heart immediately changes from his people from one of judgment to one of grace and salvation. See what I mean when I say the book is just amazing? It's just cinematic. 
it's a sword. It's not a bowl of spaghetti. It's doing something. And Ezekiel and, and the Holy Spirit through him knew exactly what they were doing. Finally, it seems to be saying, it's over. Judgment is done. And now salvation is coming. So it's a book written to strangers and exiles in the world. It's, it's meant to first arrest their attention to their, the enormity of their sin against God. And then it's meant to open their eyes to the greatness and power of God and to his promises to save him. So, so for all those reasons, as strange and as weird as all the things that are going on in it are, this is a book that is enormously relevant to us even today. It is an enormously weird thing. I mean, let's just admit it. It's an enormously weird thing for two or three hundred of us to be gathered here today looking at the words of an ancient prophet from almost 3,000 years ago, an ancient book, and taking his words seriously. And yet here we are. We're doing that because we understand that these are God's words. And they're relevant to us just as much as they were for those people. Because we are Christians, because we are the people of God, we can find in this book incredible encouragement to us. Because we ourselves, just like those ancient Israelites, are strangers and exiles in the world. And just like them, we're waiting for our salvation from God too. So that's the basic structure. That's the basic structure of the book. But the whole thing begins in chapters 1 through 3. The calling of Ezekiel to speak the word of God to, God, speak the word of God to God's people exiled there in Babylon. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, or not even the whole book, but not even the first three chapters. That would get a little long. But I do want to read the first chapter of the book to you, uh, just so you can get a sense of what Ezekiel saw out by the Kibar Canal that day. So look with me at Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Butzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They didn't turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion. On the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. And this was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel, and as they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. The rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. 
When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the Spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. And then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. An extraordinary vision, isn't it? And I was out here going up the, the, or coming down the steps just a few minutes ago before the service started. And I saw one, one dear brother, I don't, I don't know who, who it was, but I saw him, he was sitting on, the, on a bench just below the steps as I, was, as I was walking down. And I saw that he had his Bible open to Ezekiel 1. He was reading it, and I noticed that. And I was, I was, that was great. I was like, wow, that's cool. And it, he was, he was, I was walking down the steps, and I saw him as I was walking down the steps just do this. He sort of sighed, he went, and then he shook his head no, and then he shut the Bible and laid it down beside him. Well, brother, whoever you are, I know the feeling. I've been there. This is a weird, weird passage, and it's really difficult at first glance to sort of get your eyes around and get your understanding around. It's full of puzzles, it's full of imagery, it's full of symbolism, but, but the main thing despite all of that, that I think this vision of God would have done for those exiles out in Babylon, was that it would have given them this explosion of encouragement. And and therefore, it it will give this explosion to encouragement also to us, who are ourselves exiles and strangers in the land. When I'm preaching to my own church, I, I often will give a kind of main idea of the passage that we're studying to the church. And I want to do that for you this morning, too. It's just one or two sentences. So if you're the kind of person that takes notes, these will be the most important one or two sentences that you could write down. So take out a pen, write these down. You can go back to it later and kind of understand, I think, what Ezekiel 1 through 3 are about, uh, and therefore what this sermon is going to be about, I hope. If you're not the kind of person that takes notes, well, you still might want to write down these one or two sentences. Uh, It won't kill you to do that. You'll be able, in the same way, to look back and know what we talked about this morning. Here's what the main idea, I think, of this passage is. We are not home. And we are hard-pressed on every side. And yet, he reigns. And he speaks. We are not yet home, and we are hard-pressed on every side. And yet, God still reigns. And God still speaks. Those are basic truths I know for Christians, but they provide a granite foundation for us as believers in Christ. They provide the ground uh, of our hope and of our confidence. 
They give us the kind of encouragement that's necessary for us to be able to live through the ups and downs and the difficulties of life with our faith planted firmly in Jesus Christ. I want to talk with you about that for the next few minutes in kind of two points. Number one is no matter what, God still reigns. And then number two, no matter what, God still speaks. Those are the two points. God still reigns and God still speaks. And as we look at those two points from this passage of Ezekiel, I pray that you'll have your eyes opened anew to the greatness and power of God. If you're a Christian, I pray that you'll see anew the greatness and power of God and be encouraged by that to remain faithful and to press on with joy and with confidence in him. So point number one, mainly from chapter one, God still reigns. Chapter one of the book of Ezekiel opens with this extraordinary vision that the prophet had as he was out by the Kibar Canal one day. You can see how carefully Ezekiel dates the whole thing there in verses one to three. This was the 30th year, he says. That's probably his age. And in verse two, he says there that it was the fifth year since the exile had happened, which means he was probably 25 when he went into exile. The Israelites, as a nation in his exiles, had been settled by the Babylonians in an area by the Kibar Canal, which was a, a body of water that ran near the city. And Ezekiel was, was there next to the Kibar Canal, he says, with the exiles from Jerusalem. Well, he looks up one day as he's out by the Kibar Canal, and he sees a storm brewing up in the north. But as he watches, this probably wouldn't have been a, all that unusual thing to see a storm brewing in the north. That was sort of the, the, the way the winds blew and the way things moved. So not all that unusual to see a storm brewing. But as Ezekiel continues to watch the storm, the storm becomes brighter and more intense and more spectacular than anything Ezekiel had ever seen. And he realizes that he's seeing an extraordinary thing happening. Well, out of the storm, as he continues to watch, come these absolutely amazing things. And it's clear, as you read through the, the chapters we just did, that words are just failing Ezekiel. I mean, it's just, it, it's just done. He doesn't know what to do with it. And so he uses language that's full of phrases like seems like or as it were or what looked like. In the last verse of chapter 1, if you look at that, all the way down to the, to the bottom of it, Verse 28, you're like four levels deep of these sorts of words before you get to the reality. You see that in the last verse? This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's just four levels deep because Isaiah, or Ezekiel doesn't know how to talk about it. He doesn't know how to define it. His mind is just blown. I don't know if you've ever looked at books that have tried to kind of recreate in drawings or even in 3D objects what Ezekiel is describing here with the wheels and the platform and the throne and all of that kind of stuff. They all fail, and they all end up not making sense. And the reason that they don't make perfect sense is because Ezekiel's mind is blown. He's not giving us blueprints for building this thing. I mean, it's more like it's, it, the whole thing sort of has the feel more of M.C. Escher than it does mechanical engineering. You're not going to be able to read what Ezekiel is talking about here and, and build the thing. But it shouldn't surprise us that that's the case either because Ezekiel is a man and he's witnessing and seeing for the first time in his life the throne of God. And there are no blueprints for that. And it blows his mind. So you don't come away with the sense that you could build it. The vision is full of symbolism of God's power and holiness. It's just in every detail, unmistakably communicating God's greatness to this exiled, hopeless man. First thing Ezekiel sees, if you remember from the reading, are these four creatures that come out of the storm. They're very strange. They have four faces. Each creature has four faces, sort of one on each side of the head. You've got a human here, a lion here, an ox here, and then an eagle back here. Now, what's going on with that? Well, what you've got there 
are the greatest of the various kinds of animal that God created, right? So with the lion, you've got kind of the king of the wild animals, king of the jungle, as we talk, as we talk about it. The ox would be the strongest of the domesticated animals. The, the eagle would be the strongest of the, the airborne creatures. And then, of course, the human, the pinnacle of, of creation, the greatest of them all, according to Genesis chapter 1. So what's going on there? Well, these four creatures with their four faces, the great kings of creation, so to speak, are serving the Lord. All creation is attending its Lord as he comes in on his throne. There's fire in the midst of them. There's burning coals. Notice also the wings. Notice the wings there in the chapter. It says that the wings of these four creatures are outstretched like this, and the tips of the wings of one creature touch the tips of the wings of of another creature. Well, that gives us a clue as to what's going on, the fact that they form this kind of gate in front of the throne of God. It gives us a clue as to what they're doing. These creatures here with these four faces actually show up all over the Bible. Uh, If you kept reading a little bit in in Revelation, you would find them there. Uh, You've got got the wings, you've got the faces. They show up all throughout the Bible. And chapter 10 of Ezekiel identifies these creatures again as cherubim. Cherubim. You've heard that word probably. Most of the time when we think of cherubs or cherubim, they're sort of these fat-faced little babies on our mantles at Christmas with tiny little wings on their backs, right? And that's how we think of cherubs, cherubim. But that's not what they are. And cherubims are, cherubim are these fearful creatures. They're fearsome guardians of the throne of God. And that seems to be one of their main functions in scriptures, to ensure that nothing unholy ever enters God's presence. So they guard Eden after Adam's sins. The Bible says that when Adam is put out of the garden by God after his sin, what is it that's put at the gate of the Garden of Eden with a flashing sword? It's a cherub. That's who guards the throne. In Isaiah chapter 6, they purify Isaiah's lips. They stand before God's throne in the book of Revelation. And they always, over and over again, for all eternity, sing of God's holiness. And so right here in Ezekiel, here they stand in the same way, wings outstretched, touching, forming a barrier before the throne of God against any unholiness or wickedness. In verses 15 to 21, Ezekiel describes the wheels beside the creatures. This is probably the strangest part of the vision. Ezekiel says that they look like they're, these wheels are made out of some kind of radiant stone. It's, it's beryl or chrysolite, something like that, which is kind of a, a ghostly green quartz of some kind that would have, would have sparkled in a certain way. Ezekiel says these wheels are tall and awesome, and the outer edges of the wheels are covered with eyes, which, of course, symbolize God's omniscience. No matter where you are, God sees. No matter what's going on, God, God sees and knows it all. Well, strange as they are, I think these wheels, just their presence here, provide us kind of the best clue as to what's going on with this whole vision sort of taken as a, as a whole. Because what Ezekiel's giving us is not just this little vision unconnected to this little vision, unconnected to this little vision. He's seeing a whole thing, and he's trying to describe it really from the ground up. And the wheels give us the best picture of what's going on. There, there are wheels, four of them, right, on top of which there is a platform, on top of which there is a throne. I think what we're seeing here is a kind of throne chariot. It's the kind of chariot, the kind of royal throne that kings would ride in, especially when they were going to war. Now that makes it significant that Ezekiel saw this storm coming out of the north. You know why that's important? Well, let me tell you, it's going to take a little geography. So Jerusalem's way over here on the, the Mediterranean. You're gonna, we're going to do it like that. Not sure how to do it sort of backwards. But Ezekiel's, uh, uh, Jerusalem is over here on the Mediterranean Sea. Babylon is about 
is about 600 miles or so through a massive desert over to the east here. Now, because of this massive desert that existed right here, armies and exiles and everyone else could not go from Babylon to Jerusalem simply by traveling west through the desert. You had to travel from Babylon up to the north and then down, the line of attack would have been from the north south down onto the little nation of Israel. And then when the exiles were carried back to Babylon, you would have gone along the same exact route. You would have gone up to the north, around over to the east, and then down from the north to Babylon. So do you see why it's significant that the chariot throne of God is coming from the north? He is following the route of attack. God showing up in Babylon is a counterattack against the invading power of Babylon. He is coming to show his power to Babylon and to rescue his people from their grasp. In verse 22, Ezekiel's eyes keep going up. Above the heads of the creatures, above the wheels, he says there's this shimmering platform like ice. He also talks some more about the creatures' wings and the roaring sound that they make when they and they move. And then on top of that platform of shimmering ice, he says that he, there's a throne made out of sapphire and a blindingly bright figure that sits on the throne. And it's all surrounded by a rainbow. Now, the sapphire throne there is important too. It's probably not sapphire in the same way that, that you and I think about sapphire, you know, the sort of clear, sparkly blue stone. It was probably a stone called lapis lazuli which was a, a very valuable blue stone. And it was a stone that was so readily available in Babylon, but sort of nowhere else in the world, that it became a symbol of the wealth of Babylon. So, for example, all of the gates of the city of Babylon were made out of this blue stone called lapis lazuli. And they were made out of this blue stone in order to to draw the attention and strike awe and fear into any invaders that were coming. There were incredible gates that, 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 that made up the, uh, uh, the entryways into the city of Babylon, sort of the four points of the compass and then the, the ones in between those. Well, the main gate of the city of Babylon was the one that faced the north. And it was a gate that was made just blindingly beautiful out of this stone, lapis lazuli or sapphire. Do you see what God is saying by revealing his throne to Ezekiel as being made out of the symbol of the wealth and power of Babylon? Do you see what he's saying? The wealth and power of Babylon are nothing to me. I sit upon a throne made of the wealth and power of Babylon. It would have been a massively encouraging thing to the people of Israel. Then the rainbow there, a symbol of God's promise to keep his covenants, a symbol of God's unfailing faithfulness to his people. None of this symbolism that I've been talking to you about right here would have been lost on Ezekiel. It's familiar to us because we've sort of heard this story, but, 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 but you have to understand what a world-altering, life-changing vision this would have been to Ezekiel. See, everything that Ezekiel believed had been called into question when Israel was conquered and God's people had been taken into exile. And there was this massive question in Ezekiel's mind and every other exile's mind, can our God reign anywhere else but in the promised land? The Babylonians have their own gods. They have have Marduk and they have Ishtar and they have all these other gods that are powerful and it looks to us as if Marduk has dealt a fatal blow to Yahweh and we are now slaves to them. Can God reign somewhere other than home? 
And with this vision, God is saying to his people, yes, I reign everywhere. There is no place, there is no circumstance in which I do not reign. I sit on the throne even here in Babylon and I reign. Not one thing has changed. You know, friends, if you're a Christian, that's probably not news to you. None of us are under the illusion that God can reign in Louisville, Kentucky, but not in Portland, Oregon, or vice versa. We don't struggle with that kind of, with that kind of bad theology. Now, the kind of bad theology that we struggle with, at least deep down in our hearts, even if we sort of keep it quarantined in our minds, is that God does, in fact, reign in certain circumstances, but he can't reign in others. That he's very much in control in his providence and very much working out for good, Everything for those who love him in certain circumstances, when we can see it, when we can trace his hand, but he's not doing that in other circumstances. See, our theological problem isn't thinking that God can't reign in a place. It's thinking that God can't reign in certain circumstances in our lives. No, but friend, this vision that God gives to Ezekiel just blows that misunderstanding out of the water, and it ought to give us massive confidence We are, as Christians, aliens and strangers in this world. And because we are aliens and strangers like the Israelites, that's just inevitably going to create this sense of instability and restlessness and fear sometimes in our lives and in our hearts. But brothers and sisters, what sets all that to rest, what gives confidence to us in the midst of instability and restlessness and fear, is the understanding that, yes, we may suffer, Yes, we may have circumstances in our lives that that cause us to fear sometimes. Yes, we may have to suffer through sickness. We may have to suffer through broken relationships. We may have to suffer through all kinds of things. And yet, God still reigns. It's a truth that's talked about all over Scripture. Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of the sea, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Brothers and sisters, don't just hold God's reign as a kind of quarantined doctrine in your mind. Don't let it be just a shelf doctrine in your Christian life. Take it down off the shelf and let it be active in your life. Remind yourself of it. Take confidence from it. Remind yourself when you're in the hospital, God yet reigns. In the midst of uncertainty in your job, remind yourself, God yet reigns. In a hard marriage, remind yourself, God yet reigns. In your office building, God yet reigns. For missionaries in China, God yet reigns. And let that create the kind of concrete that your feet of faith can sink deeply into and hold you fast. No matter what, God still reigns. Second, God still speaks. God still speaks. The chapter here, chapter 1, ends on really an amazing note. Look at verse uh, 26 again, the end of chapter 1. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. High above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. 
So it was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. You see how it climaxes? The whole thing climaxes with the voice of one speaking. Now, that's hugely surprising to us. Because in our culture, what we expect is that something like this, in something like this, the climax ought to be visual. First, you ought to get the voice, and then you ought to get the lights. That's the way concerts and sports events do it. You ever notice that? When you go to a concert or a sporting event, the lights go down, and you might have some lasers sort of shooting around. But then the first thing that you'll hear is the voice, right? Ladies and gentlemen. Right? And then there's some more voice and some more voice and some more voice. And then at the appointed time, bam, the lights come on, and there's the artist or the sports star standing like this, and the concert is on. You move from the audio to the video. Well, not here. Here, the video leads to the audio. The most important thing that God wants his people to understand is that he speaks, not that he's pretty. Why? Well, because this, maybe above everything else, is what sets Yahweh, the one true God, apart from every other God that anybody ever purported to believe in. It is the fact that he speaks, and no other God speaks, and God rightly takes particular pride in that in the scriptures. So in the prophet Isaiah, for example, God, there is no other way to put it, he makes fun of false gods because they cannot talk. He makes fun of them, he taunts them, he says to them, speak to us, say something, anything, just tell us your name, tell us what's going to happen, tell us what has happened. I don't care, just talk. You can't. Because you're little pieces of wood and you've been carved out and your arms are stuck to your sides. And you're you can't talk. I can talk. And that makes me God. Same thing in the temple. In pagan temples, when you made your way through all of the different uh, uh, walls and you got into the, whole, the, the equivalent of the Holy of Holies, do you know what happened when you walked into that last room? You saw a vision of the God. Massive statue or something, and your eyes were drawn to the God. Not so in the temple of Israel. Not so in the temple of Yahweh. When you walked into the Holy of Holies, there was really nothing to see. A little box made out of gold, about three foot by four foot, something about the size of that pulpit if you turned it over on its, on its side. That's all there was. But in the box, the words of God. You see him setting himself apart from the other gods. I speak. Now, friends, people say all the time that they want to experience God. And, and what we mean so many times when we say we want to experience God is that we want something visual to happen. Or we want something emotional to happen. Or we want something psychological to happen. But you see what God is saying here. Experience with him comes through hearing him. Listening to what he has to say. And where does God speak today? Well, the book of Hebrews tells it to us. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus. And how did Jesus say that he was going to guide his people? Through the scriptures. That's how he's going to do it. You might wonder, especially if you're new to this church or any church in particular, you might wonder why we do such an odd thing at church as preaching. It is just a strange thing for me to stand up here for this long on a beautiful Sunday morning in Portland, Oregon, and talk and to have all of you sit there listening. Well, it's not because I have so much to say. It's because we understand that God has said 
that the way we will come to know him is through listening to his word. And so I stand here today and Michael stands here week after week after week and opens up this book, God's word to you. And he reads it and explains it. And through that, we encounter God. So when God calls Ezekiel, the heart of his calling is Ezekiel's responsibility to speak the words of God to the people of Israel, even though they're not going to listen. Chapters 2 and 3, if you kind of look through those, uh, talk about that. Essentially, chapters 2 and 3 have two ideas in them, and they kind of flip back and forth, uh, if you were to read those and look at them. Uh, Two ideas that alternate back and forth. First, you've got the hard-heartedness of Israel. They're just not going to listen to what Ezekiel has to say. And second, the fact that Ezekiel himself is a, is a bound man. He can't just say whatever he wants to say. He has to say what God wants him to say. Those two ideas are, 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 what, are what are together in chapters 2 and 3. God makes this point to him really strongly in a couple of places in chapters 2 and 3. So through most of chapter 2, what's going on is that God gives Ezekiel a scroll. It's a typical book. So it would be like just God handing, you know, handing him a book, but it's in the scroll form. And, and he, told, he tells him, he tells him that I, I want you to, to eat this, I want you to eat this book, and it tastes sweet like honey when he, when he eats it. it and, and this is a symbol of Ezekiel internalizing God's word and, and making it his own. Later, God makes the same point again and tells Ezekiel that he's a watchman. Points to responsibility. If you're a watchman on the walls of Jerusalem or another city, your job was to sort of look out and see the dangers that were coming. And when you saw a danger, you'd say, hey, danger! That's what you did. Well, Ezekiel has that same responsibility. He's to see the danger of judgment, the danger of sin, and call out to the people of Israel that there is danger out there. Then most of all, there's this extraordinary thing in chapter 3 where where God shuts Ezekiel in his house. He says, Ezekiel, you go to your house, shut yourself up in your your house, and, and not only are you to lock all the doors of your house, you're to bind yourself with cords. And not only that, but I'm gonna take away the power of speech from you. You can't talk. So you're locked in your house, you're bound up with cords, and you can't talk. Ezekiel, believe it or not, you are not your own man. That's what he's saying to him. But you can talk in one situation. When I, God, am speaking through you. You're not going to talk any other time. But when I am speaking through you, I'll loosen your tongue and allow you to talk. Does that show you how important it is? For the people of God to hear God's word. The lengths to which God is going to communicate to Ezekiel and to his people how much they need to hear God's word. How important is it that week after week on a regular basis, you yourself as a believer, as one of the people of God, put yourself under the preaching of God's word. Another thing, the other kind of message that God gives to Ezekiel is that even when he preaches, They're not going to listen. They're going to reject the message. There are rebellious people over and over and over again. In chapter 3, God even tells Ezekiel that, look, if I sent you to a foreign nation, if I sent you to Babylon or Egypt, they would listen. But my people, Israel, are so hard-hearted that they, even my people, are not going to listen when a foreign nation would. A couple of things to learn about that. I mean, just the fact that God knows in advance that the people are not going to listen to Ezekiel. I mean, for one thing, it's just interesting that God has his people's number, isn't it? I mean, he's, he's got them. He knows their heart. He knows how they're going to respond. I mean, it takes the force out of their rebellion a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, they think they're really sticking it to God by sticking their fingers in their ears and refusing to listen. But God knows it's going to happen. 
I have a four-year-old daughter. She does very similar things to me. You know, she, she throws fits. She won't listen. And, and, and it's a kind of willful rebellion for her. You know, I'll pick her up, you know, for, to, to settle her down because she's doing something wrong. And, and she'll even sort of push against my, my chest. And, and it's, this, it's this willful rebellion against me. But I'll often look at her and just be like, you are all will and no power. Like, what are you going to do? I outweigh you by like 10 times. You're not going to do anything. It just takes some of the force out of her rebellion. Are are you thinking at some level that you are getting God by rebelling against him? Do you think somehow that you're getting God maybe by staying away from church for most of your life? You're not getting him. He's got your number. Whatever rebellion you think you may be fomenting against God, in his eyes, it is small and utterly in hand. Another thing that's just amazing, I think, is that even though he knows they're going to rebel, even though he knows they're not going to listen, he sends his word to them anyway. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7, God is speaking to Ezekiel, and he says to him, you must speak my words to them, whether they listen or not. Massive grace on the part of God. Same thing comes up again in chapter 3, verse 11. Why does he do that? Why does God speak to his people even though he knows they're going to rebel? It's because he loves them. It's because he is full of grace and mercy. That's why he does it. And you realize that the very voice of God to you through his scripture, through his son Jesus, is God's love and grace being shown to you. Think back to the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned. When humanity sinned against God. The last thing that any of us could, could have heard from God's lips was you are condemned. And then there could have been eternal and universal silence from him. It could have been like that. But praise God, he spoke again. He spoke again over and over and over and said, I will save my people. Now, friend, this is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That even though we are rebels against him, even though we willfully sin against God, yet in his love, He sent his son Jesus, the word made flesh, as John calls him. To save from sin every single person who would ever put their faith in him, believe in him, trust him, repent of their sins and say, Jesus, I can't save myself. I need you to save me. You realize what an incredible grace that is. That though you deserve to die for your sins, yet Jesus came And died in the place of sinners just like you. And then he rose again. So that if by faith you'll just just say, Jesus, I need you to save me. And just embrace him. Because he lives, you will live. Because he is resurrected, you will be resurrected. Because he's glorified, you will be glorified. What amazing grace that God did not have to give. Last thing, I want you to flip the page and look at chapter 3, verse 27. 
Chapter 3, verse 27. God says to Ezekiel there, when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Whoever will listen, let him listen. And whoever will refuse, let him refuse. You know, Jesus used that phrase in the Gospels over and over and over again. As he preached, as he told about the grace of God, he said over and over and over again, whoever will listen, let him listen. Whoever will refuse, let him refuse. See, see, some will hear this message of salvation from God through Jesus Christ, and they will hear and they will respond. Others will hear this message and reject it. Friend, this is the most important thing that you will ever hear in your life. God judges. And God, through Jesus, saves. The question is whether you will hear that message and respond to it. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we praise you this morning because you are the God who reigns. You're the God who made us. You're the God who causes our hearts to beat. You're the God who causes our lungs to fill with air and the blood to go through our Our vessels, Lord, you are the one who gives us life and who sustains us in life. And you are also the God who shows compassion and mercy and grace to those who do not deserve it. You are the God who sent your son Jesus to live as we should have lived from the very beginning. And to die the death that we deserve for our sins. And to rise again so that by faith we might be united to him and rise again with him. You are the God who saves sinners. Oh God, help us to remember that and to glory in it this morning, the rest of this week and the rest of this year and the rest of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.